The fight over climate change becomes a really great way of seeing how neoclassical economics and neoliberalism leads you down the wrong path. Do we say, who are we going to tax to spend on the military? That never comes up. But when it comes to funding the Green New Deal, then who are we going to tax? Let's be practical. Let's not allow the destruction of the nation. That is a practical <laughs> thing. Look, when your house is on fire, you got to grab some buckets and put the fire out. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. An honest conversation about how to make capitalism work for everyone. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, hey, Nick, we've spent a ton of time on this podcast talking about economics, talking about what's wrong with neoclassical economics and neoliberalism and how a better understanding of how the economy leads to better policies and better policies lead to better outcomes. And we have a lot of ideas on what we can do to improve the economy and make it more inclusive and broadly prosperous for everybody. But really... None of that really matters if our planet is blowing up, right? Yeah. <laughs> or if you can't take those ideas, the abstract economic ideas we've been talking about, and instantiate them into policies and politics, right? And so um, one of the ways in which it can be instantiated into policies and politics is by doing something like addressing climate change. Right, right, because you know it doesn't matter how high your wage is if your your cities are flooded <laughs> and your fields are yeah, the are, planet is on fire. Right, right, right. Exactly. right. So, so really, in the end, it's all about if the purpose of economics is to broadly improve the lives of people, which is our one normative claim. Yeah, and our planet, our climate is actually going to hell. There's not much of an economy. That's right, and. I mean, climate change is both an end in itself, but it also becomes a really great way of seeing, then the fight over climate change becomes a really great way of seeing how neoclassical economics and neoliberalism leads you down the wrong path. That if you accept all the frameworks of neoclassical economics, that the only thing that matters is self-interest, that if justice goes up, uh, prosperity goes down, that price equals value, all of that stuff, what it does is it massively constrains your ability to take on new big things like climate change. And this is why that, you know, sort of neoclassical economics is all bound up in these bizarre, uh, self-limiting cost-benefit analyses right. of whether we should address climate change while putting aside the existential threat right. of the problem. Right, because <laughs> because there is no room for an actual uh, earth inside those fictional models. Ex exactly, that it doesn't matter. And so today, uh, we're really fortunate to get to talk to um, an old friend, a good friend, the governor of the state of Washington, Jay Inslee, who is running for president on the issue of climate change. Right. And the only candidate right. running on that issue is the top priority. Right. And it's cool to get to talk to Governor Inslee for a couple of reasons. First, you know, his presidential candidacy is really interesting and fun. And his commitment to climate change 
I think, distinguishes him from the field. But the other really cool thing for us, Goldie, uh, as Washingtonians, is that uh, Governor Inslee gets to go out and tell the story of this Washington contrasted right. with the other Washington. Because in this Washington, we have really successfully uh, addressed a lot of the problems that the country faces. We have raised wages. We have improved people's access to a better life in a broad variety of ways. And our state's economy it leads the nation in job growth, in wage growth, everything. I mean, if you look at where Washington and where King County, the biggest county, ranks in all of the economic statistics, it is either the number one or number two, and right. has been for half for, a dozen. Yeah, for, for, yeah, year, for, for years, years now. and years and years. Quarter after quarter, exactly. you look at those results. Fastest rates of small business job growth, fastest rates of wage increases, which just goes to show that we are being successful not in spite of the progressive policies that we're enacting, but because of them. Right, raising, $15 minimum right. wage, paid sick leave, paid family leave, secure scheduling, all of those job killers. Plus, plus the most robust voting system really probably in the nation. You know, we can go on and on. But again, these policies, sort of contrary to the orthodoxy, don't uh, retard the rate at which uh, the economy goes. They actually propel the rate at which the economy grows, that they are the cause of success. Right. And nobody will be a better storyteller on that than our governor, Jay Inslee. Yeah. <laughs> are you on Fox and Friends? This morning, I was on this is 5 a.m. Yeah. You were on Fox and Friends. Yes, yeah. I, I released my tax returns. I said, I'm doing this on the president's favorite TV channel. I'm here to challenge him to do the same. All right. Here we are. Uh, and here we are in particular with our old friend, uh, Governor of Washington, Jay Inslee. So welcome to Pitchfork Economics, Governor Inslee. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad we have the best tines in the business at the Pitchfork. <laughs> yes, <campaign>. exactly. <laughs> they ring so beautifully. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I'm joined also by my colleague, David Goldstein. Welcome. Thanks, Colby. And so today we wanted to talk uh, to the governor who hopes not to be governor in the future <laughs> and to be president of the United States, mostly about the issue that sort of frames his campaign, which is climate change. And in particular, wanted to expand on how climate change really isn't the narrow issue that some people think of it as, but rather is, first of all, an existential issue, but an issue that is broad and touches a lot of the issues that other people care about. Yeah, yeah. explain why you are not a single issue candidate when you run on climate. Yeah. Well, uh, listen, we know a scientific fact that we are the first generation to feel the sting of climate change, and we are the last generation that can do something about it. Yep. And this is an urgent matter. We have exactly one shot to get this done. You know, a lot of things in life you could put off uh, 10 years or 20 years. You cannot put this off because the next administration is the last chance to really fundamentally save us from the cataclysmic uh, results of climate change. And so mm -hmm. when you have only one chance, you need to take it. And the reason this is such a universal issue is that it touches everything in our lives, every place in the United States, and we cannot solve our multiple desires and challenges unless this one is resolved because without a healthy system to support you, you can't solve your other problems. So. It is not one issue. It is all issues. You know, and, if it, and it, even if it was one issue in one regard, if you wanted to look at that way, look, on December 8th, 1941, the, the morning after Pearl Harbor, would, would people have accused Franklin Roosevelt of being a single issue president? 
This is an existential <laughs> yeah, threat. Right. It is a threat to the basic stability of our nation. And we, we have to have a, a president who will call the better uh, capabilities of this country forth to defeat this beast. Yeah. I want to know, let, let's be practical here. I mean, sure, it's an existential crisis, but how can we afford to save the planet and still give uh, giant tax cuts to Nick? I mean, <laughs> yeah. what, what's the priority yeah. here? Well, first <laughs> off, let's be practical. Let's not allow the destruction of the nation. That is a practical <laughs> thing. Look, when your house is on fire, you got to grab some buckets and put the fire out. And our planet literally is on fire right now, figuratively and lit- literally. And so it is a practical response not to allow your house to burn down. People say this is sort of a unicorns and rainbows. No, it's whether you're going to have a place to live. So this is a very practical thing to do. And even if you have questions about how bad this is going to be, you buy insurance for your house. This is an insurance policy as well. And as far as Nick's tax returns, look, this is also a way to bring more justice to our society. And this is really important. We know that income inequality is a huge justice issue in our society. And this is a way to embed what I think of as we're gonna, we have to make a transition to a decarbonized economy. And in doing that, we need a just transition, not just a transition. Mm -hmm. We have to build a clean energy economy that focuses on helping frontline communities, marginalized communities. We know that the first victims of climate change are usually people in poverty, communities of color. And we have to build a just transition to focus on that, to use this as a tool to to bring more income equality rather than income inequality. And there's many ways you can do that. So this is not just an environmental issue. It is an economic issue. Issue. It is a social justice issue. And I'm really pleased that people are starting to think of it in these terms. Uh, yeah, it's going to help us get this done. Yeah, and if I might suggest, I, I actually don't think of your campaign or climate change as an issue so much as an organizing principle. Mm-hmm. It's simply a way of organizing your thinking around addressing the biggest problems facing the nation. And you can come at it. You know, you can come at political economy in one way or you can come at it another way. And using climate as the organizing principle may be the best way to come at all these issues, given the intersection of the climate crisis and the need to transform our economy in all sorts of important ways and to bring more justice to it and more fairness. Well, that is that is the term I use. You used it as an organizing principle for the campaign. That's exactly the language I use. Mm -hmm. We have to have this as an organizing principle for the whole federal government, meaning you can't just have one little agency checking the box to deal with this issue. You have to embed this as an organizing tenet of your governing philosophy. I'll give you an example. So tax policy. This isn't just an environmental issue. It's a tax policy. And one of the first things we need to do is to stop raiding Americans' pockets to, to shell out $27 billion in tax subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. Right. We need to end that gravy train right yes. now and redirect some of those funds into research and deployment of clean energy and helping consumers get access to clean energy. So uh, it's tax policy, it's health policy, it's national security policy. You have to embed this throughout your administration to get this done. And the central thing I'm saying in my campaign is this has to be job one. This has to be the first, foremost, and top priority of the United States. If it is not job one, it won't get done. Yeah. Because you have to be able to willing to spend the political capital, build the mandate during your campaign 
to carry it in to make it a, a real governing philosophy. And, and this is one thing that separates me from the other uh, aspirants to this. I'm the only person who's saying this who recognizes what you have to do to actually get this job done. Yeah. So bringing this whole conversation from the very abstract to the concrete, a long time ago, if we had one forest fire a season, that was a big deal. And we scrambled to deal with it. Uh, last year, we had 1,800 forest fires. This year, we've already had 50 a month before the teams were even stood up to begin to fight them. And here's the thing is that our society is already spending hundreds of millions or billions of dollars dealing with this crisis in a backwards ad hoc way, in the same way that we're already spending money on climate change to deal with the flooding that's happening in the Midwest or the cyclones that are happening around the world. The question isn't whether you're going to spend the money to deal with it or not. The question is whether you're going to organize yourself to prevent the catastrophes and actually extract value from that process or just deal with the crap that comes as a consequence of it. Mm -hmm. So for a tiny middle, little bit of money up front, we can address a climate change issue, save property, clean the air, generate a new industry, and everybody's better off, right? Like yeah. it, it, if you did that at the national scale, well, then we'd be well, in business. Well, Exxon's not better off. <laughs> okay, I mean, okay, again. Okay. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Exxon mean, that, is not better off. And that off. gets yeah. to, to um, I think, one of the, the challenges facing us is there's a lot of money and power mm -hmm. opposed to doing anything about climate because mm -hmm. they profit from the system the way it is. H how do we address that part of the, the political challenge? Well, first off, uh, you say you're not taking money from the from the fossil fuel industries, and I've made that pledge. So that's the first thing. And second, yeah. you say you're going to stop this gravy train with these giant billion dollar uh, efforts. And third, you fight back about their against their misinformation campaign. And look, they have been running the same campaign the tobacco industry ran for decades, and it's been uh, unfortunately partially effective. But now we are turning the tide in public opinion, both because people are seeing these disasters firsthand, and they're also seeing the job creation that's happening right now. Because jobs in the clean energy sector are now growing twice as fast as the U.S. economy. The number one fastest growing uh, job today is in solar installer. Number two is in wind turbine technician. There are a hell of a lot more jobs in fighting climate change than there is in denying climate change. And that's happening all across the country. Look, you can't turn over a rock where we don't have clean energy jobs being created and batteries in Nevada and wind turbines in Iowa. And the fact is that we have these products available made by American workers. In fact, the same day Donald Trump held one of his crazy rallies in Michigan saying that, you know, this is a disaster. Hillary wanted to put up wind, wind. If you, if you have a windmill anywhere near your house, congratulations. Your house just went down 75% in value. <laughs> and they say the noise causes cancer. You tell me that one, okay? <laughs> you know, the thing makes it so... And of course, it's like a graveyard for birds. General Motors said we're adding 400 new employees making electric cars. Yeah. Every major auto manufacturer is now going to have a line of electric cars. So I think that this is a message that resonates with the optimistic version, too. And we haven't talked about this from kind of an emotional standpoint yes. yet. But I do believe that this resonates with the American character. That we are fundamentally an optimistic can-do people. We are the most innovative people in the world. We're, we're can-do people. And uh, Trump's uh, pessimism is not yes. part of who we are as yeah. a nation. Yeah. 
for they, sure. You've talked about this as a moonshot. When you're out there campaigning, do voters still believe in America that we can do big things like this, big challenges, rise up to it? They do. I think that fundamental character is, is there, but you need a spark. It's like anything else. You need a spark, and you need presidential leadership to create this vision, to give people hope. When I was in Seminole Springs, one of the things they said, hey, you've brought a little hope to our community. Presidents need to do that. I saw this in my own life when Kennedy says we're going to the moon and back in 10 years. And so I think that spark is what the nation needs right now, and I think the nation will respond. Uh, the public perception of this is changing dramatically. What used to be a graph on a chart is now a, mm -hmm. a picture of a town that's burned down. So yeah. public perception is ready for this if we have that inspiration. And I think, frankly, America's had a belly full of the fear and, and insecurity of Donald Trump. And people have said, well, geez, you know, uh, we can't decarbonize the economy in 10 years. And they want to quibble about timelines. I mean, when Kennedy said we're going to the moon in 10 years, did anybody sitting around and say, oh, no, I think it'll be 11 and a half. So, yeah. so let's not go. Yeah. No, we want to push the go button on this revolution. We know it can happen. We know it's going to be a hugely productive thing economically yes. in jobs. And we know it's going to be good for our kids. And it's a moral thing to do. So let's get into uh, a little bit of the specifics. We hear a lot, you know. Green New Deal, you're running on climate, you want to make it the top priority. You've talked about how we need to shift from a carbon economy to a carbon-free economy. And whenever you have big disruptive changes like that in the economy, there are winners and losers. And that's what gives a lot of people fear that they'll be the losers. What do we do to prevent there from being losers so that everybody comes out of this a winner, not just in a cleaner, safer planet, but also economically, the out-of-work coal miners, the uh, folks in the fracking fields and so forth, to be able to reassure... The senior executives at Exxon. Yeah, I'm not as worried about them, <laughs> but sure, even the senior executives at Exxon. How, how do we make sure that there is economic justice and inclusion in such a disruptive program? Well, you think about it, number one, and we think about doing everything humanly possible to smooth any such transition in difficulties. So that means you focus on making investments in communities that might have that type of dislocation. You focus on your infrastructure investments in those communities that might have that dislocation. You focus your education and training opportunities to really embrace people and put your arms around them and give them every single scholarship under the sun. You create tax systems that help communities that might have a difficulty in that regard. So you do all those things that will, as I've talked about, to have a just transition, not just a transition. But if you really think about it, when you look backwards in time and you say, did the transition from the horse-drawn economy to the steam engine really destroy a lot of lives? It really did not. And one of the reasons it did not is it didn't happen over a 24-hour period. Yeah. This is not going to happen over a 24-hour period. Yeah. And I don't think anyone now would say, no, we should, you know, we should not have gone from horses to steam engines because we will have some transition. We are all going to have better lives ultimately by going through this transition. I am convinced of it. Right. I mean, li literally, the transition from horses to internal combustion was a 20-year period. It happened yeah, in two decades. It, we're talking about over a several-decade period decarbonizing the U.S. economy. 
Now, it has to be several decades rather than several centuries, yeah. or our goose is cooked. Yeah. And we got to get started right now. If you look at the IPCC report, uh, what they have made clear is we got to start right now. We just do not have any more time. By the way, this is one of the reasons why I think we need to end the filibuster, because we are not going to be able to move this yeah. through the legislature if we don't end the ability of yeah. 40 Republicans to stop all progress. And I'm the only candidate, which is actually a little shocking to me, who's willing to say that. Yeah. Look, you're not going to have health care. You're not going to have climate change. You're not going to have anything as long as we give this senatorial privilege. And, and so far, I'm the only candidate. Yeah, it's uh, not, by the this. way, it's not 40. It's one. Right. <laughs> yeah, there right? you go. You know, there just you go. One, <laughs> one angry old white guy. There you go. <laughs> by the way, before I forget, uh, for those who might be listening to this, if you share some of my ideas, I hope you will help me get this message onto the stage during the first debate in June, which yeah. takes 65,000 people to send in somewhere between $1 and $5,600 to <laughs> jansley.com. And I hope those who are interested, yeah. if there's anybody with a dollar in your pocket, jansley.com, if you can send in a dollar to that, that will uh, hopefully right. get us on the stage in yeah. the next debate. So right. e thanks even, for that shameless plug. And I'm going to add to that, even if they're not ready to support you, even, oh, if, you're not, even if, if you're not their first choice, because you're the only one who is running on climate and I'm afraid if you don't if you don't get onto the stage in June that's going to send a message to all those senators that maybe climate is something they don't need to talk about. Yeah, I agree with that assessment. I think have this flag on the debate and have it succeed is very important on the messaging part of this. And, and you know, look, everybody says is checking the box on climate change running for this on the Democratic side. But checking the box is not enough. So this is a unique position, and I agree with you. It is important that that message be on the stage. And I agree. Look, there might be multiple candidates. You can send a dollar to to have these messages. I guess what you're saying is we will accept polygamy, not just monogamy in this situation. <laughs> They'll both be yeah. successful yeah. Uh, to make sure this is on the stage. What gives you confidence that you can get this kind of stuff done? Well, a lot of folks have talked about the things we've talked about, but it's fairly rare of actually getting it done. And, and I've been able to get a lot done in our state to help create a really an economic uh, miracle in Washington, where we're yeah. listed as the best place to do business by Business Insider magazine and the best place to be an employee by Oxfam. That's a really unique twofer. Look, we've got the best paid family medical leave in the nation, the most robust. We've had one of the greatest increases in the minimum wage, thanks to Nick and Goldie's leadership yeah. that has demonstrated that we can raise wages and actually increase jobs. Yep. Look, the place with one of the biggest wage increases on minimum wage is the state with the greatest job creation rate, for yes. goodness sakes. Yeah. So this These is a, two things are connected. This is a template for success, as <laughs> yeah. you've pointed out. Yeah. They're not a reason for failure, they're a reason for success. Yes. So you ask why I'm confident we can do this, it's because we've actually done these things in Washington State. What everybody's talking about in the Senate, we've done in my state. Right. And so I believe that we can expand opportunity. Look, Donald Trump and his crew, they couldn't run a two-car funeral. It's yeah. just ridiculous. Yeah. So we need executive experience to it get that job done. It is the keystone cops. I yeah. can't believe you want to uh, impose this dystopian economy on the rest of <laughs> yeah, the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what, what, are, what is the country going to do with a $15 minimum wage and high job growth, high wage growth? Yeah. I mean, that's terrible. It's this the, is communist. It's, yeah. it's, it's the nightmare that the Republicans all dread. Yeah. <laughs> Why is that? Can I ask you something? You've been in Congress, like particularly on climate. Do they really not believe in science? So this is an interesting uh, psychological discussion. And I'll just tell you my theory on this. 
not really, because it is self-deception. Uh, Republicans have been self-deceived on climate. Uh, it is not for lack of scientific literacy, and that's the thing that's stunning. You have Republican members of Congress who, who you know, have become dentists, have become physicians. They had to take physics. <laughs> they had to take chemistry. Yeah. And so how is it possible that they would deny climate science? And it is pure self-deception because in their minds they think, I have to deceive myself, at least publicly, because if I admit that this is a problem, we'll have to have some community response to it. And that will, by necessity, involve some governmental activity because we have to have some communal response to this. And they can't stand the thought of the community, uh, instead of giving $27 billion to their oil company buddies, will actually help subsidize, to some degree, solar panel companies. They can't stand that thought. And so it's just a, it's a pure self-deception, and it's very regrettable. Because in the rest of the world, this is not a partisan issue. Right. And let's be clear, $15 minimum wage, raising the federal minimum wage, that resonates, you know, even the, in the heartland. You betcha it does. This has a huge success and support by the American people. They understand that. There's other things that resonate. Decriminalizing marijuana resonates across the United States as well. Another issue where politicians, particularly Republicans, are behind where the people are. Yeah. And I'm for catching up where, where the people are, which is higher wages, more freedom and protection against intolerance. And that's a fundamental message that I think everybody can embrace, certainly yeah. our party. So I'm looking forward to it. Great. Thanks, guys. Yeah, Don't forget to vote. This is a great, great conversation. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Thank Governor, you. Governor, President, soon to be elected, maybe? <laughs> uh, hey, yeah, listen, you go to jansley.com yeah. and we can make this happen. Okay. At the, right. at the very least, coming. get you into that debate. There yeah. you go. That's the first step. All right. So one of the things that's heartening talking to uh, Governor Inslee, Nick, is that we finally have a candidate who's willing to commit to addressing what really is the number one issue facing us, right? climate change. And of course, the attack on that is that that'll be really, really expensive. Yeah, we can't afford it. We, we can't afford to address... Our, our existential crisis. We can't serve, scrimp and save our way to um, annihilation. Right. It'd be awesome. We, we, we could. It just, it's, you know, <laughs> think of all the sacrifices we'd, we'd have, have to, to make, make in order to, to survive. To save the planet. <laughs> yeah. But if you remember in episode 20, Nick, we talked with Professor Stephanie Kelton about modern monetary theory. And Weirdly, that does provide an answer to how we might pay for it. That's right. And today we get to talk to another sort of remarkable thinker, Dr. Fadl Kaboob, who is a professor of economics at Denison University and is one of the sort of leaders in thinking about how we generate sustainable prosperity. In fact, he's the president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. And, you know, what's really interesting is that when you think about economics, in a new way, as Dr. Kelton and Dr. Kaboob do. It gives you permission to think much more ambitiously about how to address these challenges. Better narratives, better opportunities. That's right. That's right. And Dr. Kaboob is a very, very smart and interesting person who's thought very deeply about these uh, challenges. Hi, my name is Fadl Kaboob. Uh, I teach economics at Denison University in Ohio, and I'm the president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. So we were fortunate enough to talk with Professor Kelton recently, 
to, to have her explain the, the theory of MMT. Uh, we were hoping we could talk to you today about some of the more uh, practical applications of it, uh, specifically in regards to probably the greatest challenge facing us now, which is climate change. We talked with uh, Governor Inslee, who is a candidate, uh, about uh, his proposal to make climate the priority of his White House, but it isn't cheap what's being proposed. Uh, does MNT help tell us how to pay for these things? Uh, absolutely. Well, the first thing is the current system isn't cheap either. <laughs> and what <laughs> right. MNT is proposing is really tackling some of the existing social problems related to inequality and, and climate change problems. And uh, in terms of cost, yes, we need a massive intervention to restructure the economy, the way we produce electricity, the way we build things, the way we produce things, the way we transport things. It's been long overdue. And we're not talking something that scientists you know, discovered in the last decade or two. This has been on the radar screen from you know, Silent Spring all the way to the IPCC report uh, from a few months ago. So, so this is finally kind of a, a collective recognition that something has to be done urgently. The clock is ticking. And then the entire progressive environmentalist movement is saying, yes, this is important. It needs to be done, but can we afford it? And this is where MMT comes in and says, yes, we can afford it if we put in place a specific plan that allows us to tackle all the priorities, redress some of the structural weaknesses in the economy that produce inequality, that produce poverty, that produce all kinds of negative social and economic effects. And we can do it without causing inflation because we have the monetary sovereignty of the state, meaning the federal government in the case of the United States, that allows us to dedicate and marshal all the resources we have to achieving that. The best example I can think of, and a lot of people have been talking about this example, is how the United States was able to marshal resources for World War II. We have to remember that World War II came right after the Great Depression, the most miserable time in US history, uh, in world history. There was no wealth to be taxed. There was no money to be borrowed domestically or internationally, and yet, in a matter of months, the U.S. was able to bring the economy all the way back to full employment and beyond without taxing before the war and without borrowing before the war. The tax rates went up during the war. The bond sales, the freedom bonds and the war bonds were sold during the war, way after the productive machine was, was in full speed and people were getting wages. So the government used the sovereign power of the state, the power of the purse that Congress has, to spend money into existence to fund the national priorities. The national priorities at the time was to win the war. And we had to restructure the economy massively. We had to shut down production lines in Detroit away from producing cars and into producing military equipment. We had to uh, control prices to make sure that key commodities are you know, directed towards the war effort. We had to bring women into the labor force, older people into the labor force to keep up with the, with the productive capacity needs of the economy. So it wasn't simple, but it didn't cause inflation. It didn't cause hyperinflation. Yes, it did increase government 
spending massively, the deficit spending, the national debt, but it didn't lead to all the things that mainstream economists tell you will will happen in terms of inflation and hyperinflation and a breakdown of the economic system. From an MMT perspective, yeah. a sovereign government can always afford to spend on the national priorities, whether it's healthcare or education or a Green New Deal. What matters and where the limit is, is the inflationary limit. And inflation happens when we're spending beyond the productive capacity of the economy, when we run out of know-how, when we run out of raw materials, when we run out of people who have the skills to do things. That's when we get to the inflationary limit. And today we're not even close to that limit, despite what the mainstream economists tell us, we're at full employment. If we're at full employment, let's offer everybody a job and see if nobody will show up, right? But that's not the case. Obviously, yes. there's lots of hidden <laughs> Then you don't have to worry. There's at least 15 million people <laughs> unemployed today. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the people who worry about the job guarantee and say we're at full employment. Then we well, then you have nothing moved, to right? worry about. No one will step up to have that's, a job. <laughs> exactly. A good point. And, this, and this, is, this is where we get to kind of the, the deep structural weaknesses in the economy that's, that's been building up over the last, you know, uh, three, four decades with the rising gap between wages and productivity, a stagnation of wages for working class and middle class people, the massive accumulation of consumer debt and household debt, uh, mortgage debt, um, student loan debt over the years. I mean, this is the, the theme of, of the podcast. It's pitchfork yes. economics. Yes. And it's the clock is ticking when it comes to inequality, but also the clock is ticking when it comes to climate change. Yeah. The, the beautiful thing about the Green New Deal philosophy here is that not only we can, you know, marshal the resources because we have renewable energy technology that's available. It's getting cheaper by the day. We have millions of people around the world who want to work. And we have this climate crisis. The planet is on fire. Put all these three things on the table and the solution is right there except for how do we pay for it? Where does the money come from? And this is where MMT's contribution, I think is the most important thing. Otherwise, if you ignore the MMT principle, then you're left with one thing. Who are we going to tax? Who are we going to borrow from? And there's always gonna be opposition to this. We're yes. gonna tax you know, the rich, the poor, the middle class, or are we gonna borrow from China? We, then we're stuck in this vicious cycle of, of mainstream economics of Presumably, you know, our friends, the progressives, the environmentalists are also stuck in that mindset. And MMT is, is offering this, you know, a, a new lens to think about the possibilities. So the Republicans never seem to worry about how we're going to pay for their tax cuts or their wars. Are, are they secret MMTers? Uh, I don't know about secret MMTers, <laughs> but they definitely know. I mean... Um, they definitely know that it's these are not real constraints, uh, and it's it's the Democrats who actually yes. are obsessed with this pay-go system, right? Um, uh, Dick Cheney said it. You know, he said Reagan proved that uh, deficits don't matter. Yes, um, I, I wouldn't call him an MMTer, but he definitely knows that when it comes to national priorities, the power of the purse is there, and if Congress approves the spending, then the spending happens. I think you're making some really interesting observations. I'm just going to play one of them back to you in a slightly mm -hmm. um, less abstract way. I mean, healthcare costs in America are something like $3 trillion per year on a $20 trillion uh, economy. 
you know, right. but if America's healthcare system were in, on the order of as effective as the other industrialized nations, it would be 65% of that or 60% of that, right? So right. instead of spending $3 trillion a year on healthcare, we'd spend collectively $2 trillion oh, good. collectively. Have another trillion dollars for stock buybacks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, just to your inflation point, if you addressed some of these underlying issues, wages can rise a lot and you know, total costs may still come down because we have effectively addressed a bunch of these things. Obviously, if people aren't spending all this money on gas and healthcare and, right. you know, then you can afford to do a lot of other things. Yeah, if on the energy front, yes, we're going to spend a lot of money up front to transform energy production and transportation in the U.S., but in the long term, you're completely eliminating the inflationary pressure that we import because there's a conflict in the Middle East or because of there's yeah. something happening in the Gulf of Mexico, some you know weather conditions that are you know destroying productive capacity or whatever. You're completely producing a resilient energy and transportation system in the long term. And so this is how you address inflation. The Green New Deal will kill that inflationary pressure right. that's driving inflation today. But we have to go after those root causes of inflation. Some of the critics say, well, why don't you just do the Green New Deal like all the green stuff and ignore healthcare and leave the other stuff alone? We'll do it later. Well, you can't. If you have a broken car and it has so many broken pieces, you can't just say, let's just fix this part of the engine and then try to drive it. It will not run. You have yeah. to fix everything in the system. And this is long overdue. Yeah. The minimum wage is long overdue. Climate is long overdue. Healthcare is long overdue. Yeah. So all of it has to be done now. The clock is ticking and we can do it. Yeah, it's so interesting. So, you know, one of the things that we devote a lot of time to the podcast to is, you know, sort of the generalized notion that there is so much about orthodox economic thinking and neoliberalism that constrains our choices uh, and essentially amounts to a protection racket for rich people. It's a set of ideas that are sort of embedded in our policymaking and our culture that constrain us from doing things that benefit people broadly, but massively benefit people, you know, at the very tippy top narrowly or, or the entrenched interests, obviously. You right. know, the good folks at Exxon most definitely aren't in favor of the Green New Deal and will come up with all sorts of orthodox economic reasons for not doing so, that we can't afford it. In your work, how do you think about that? Well, I'm, I'm a political economist by training, so you can't really, you know, part of the mainstream economic strategy is to focus just on the kind of pure economic variables and, and leave all the other stuff for, you know, poets in the political science department or poets in the anthropology department and that all, all the other, you know, disciplines are in the social sciences are, are dismissed as not scientific enough. Yeah. And this is really the, the power of mainstream economics. For, for example, I mean, what's the top alternative to the Green New Deal that you hear about today? It's carbon pricing. You know, it's a, it's a very simple neoclassical, you know, model that says, you know, here's a market solution to dealing with, uh, with, with pollution, uh, to dealing with externalities. It's a small drop in the bucket, and it's still based on tax this to pay for that. Right? Yes. And it, trying to put it in, in today's system, 
we're doomed. I mean, there's there's no time. And, and this is assuming it passes in Congress. This is assuming it raises the revenues that they claim it does. This is the thing. The federal government doesn't need tax revenues in order to spend. It's not like you and I. It's not like the local state and municipalities. So the idea of, you know, let's find somebody to tax. Now, MMT is not saying we shouldn't tax pollution. We should tax pollution not because we need the money to spend on the Green New Deal, but because we want to minimize pollution and eliminate pollution. We should tax gambling. We should tax speculation, not because we need the money, but because that's an important thing to eliminate from the system and minimize from the system. Same thing with taxing the rich and the ultra rich. It's not because we need their money. The federal government doesn't need anybody's money. The federal government needs to tax in order to tame the inflationary pressure. We need to tax the super rich to save democracy from plutocracy, uh, from oligarchy. That's the purpose of taxation. It's not because we need the money to spend. Same thing with all kinds of federal government spending. Do we say, who are we going to tax to spend on the military? That never comes up. But when it comes to funding the Green New Deal, then who are we going to tax? Yeah. And where does the money come from? And then the, the, the carbon pollution thing. So mainstream economics, especially the theory of money, which is, you would think that by, by now, economists would have settled what is money and how does it work. And that's, that's not true. And this has been a myth perpetuated for decades by generations of economists. The most important one of them is Paul Samuelson. Yes. Who... His textbook has, you know, anybody who studied economics, you know, my generation or before or after since the 1950s, Paul Samuelson is the main thing. So the story of money that he introduced in the book says, first, there was barter, there was no money, and then that became very inconvenient. So people invented money, and it's people, not governments. So it's the private sector invented money. And then later on, governments came in as participants like everybody else which means the logic of spending is the same as everybody else's logic. And then he was asked, you know, later in his life, you know, where did that story come from? Is, is, is there historical evidence for it, anthropological evidence? And he said, no, I just made it up. It's logical. And it is logical, but there is no evidence for it. So it was the anthropologists and the historians and the archaeologists who actually, you know, dig for physical evidence about how money developed in different societies around the world. David Graeber, who's uh, an anthropologist, mm. he wrote yeah. this book called 5,000 Years of Debt, where he summarized essentially all the literature about the history of money. Dozens and dozens of cases around the world going back 5,000 years with actual evidence. Not a single one of those matched the story that you read in economics textbooks. In every single case, dozens and dozens of cases from around the world matched the story that MMT tells what money is, where it comes from, and how it works. And the logic of every monetary system that we know of is the following. The government spends money into existence, and then it taxes afterwards. We don't tax before we spend, Yeah. unlike the rest of us users of money. So you take that one principle that neoclassical economics ignores and flips on its head and builds in it into every single textbook. And you get the mess that we have today with the popular logic that we have about taxing and spending and what we can afford. What was it that Samuelson famously said, Nick? Yeah, I, I, I don't care about your laws, but let me write the economic textbook, right? Right. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. So yeah. we have to wrap this up, but I must say that, you, you you know, towards the end of this interview, you said one of the really most interesting things that anybody has mentioned on the podcast recently, which is that the point of taxation is not to raise revenue. I'm paraphrasing you. Right. The point of taxation is to discourage things that are harmful to the society, <laughs> which exactly. is, you know, obviously it's more than that. But um but I think that that's a really interesting point, that one of the big reasons to tax extreme wealth is because extreme wealth is actually harmful. You know, concentrated economic and political power is unambiguously bad for human societies. Right. And the degree to right. which you can moderate it um, will be better for everyone, save a couple of people who disagree at the very tippy top. But. And that, they'll be fine. They'll yeah, be they'll fine. be fine. No, I can, I, I can tell you personally, we, we will be fine. But it's a really interesting point and something we should revisit and talk about in a broader way sometime. It's really fascinating. Well, Absolutely. listen, thank you so much for spending some time with thank us. You. It's a very interesting My discussion. Pleasure. And uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks thank, for having me on the show. Thank you. Thank, thank you. So I was really struck by how precisely... Dr. Kabubis thought about these issues and the way in which MMT intersects with them. And he was such an interesting reminder of how we, we actually have done this before. We simply spent into existence the entire capacity uh, for our war, our war machine going into World War II, right? And in fact, <laughs> it's a great, and it's a great comparison because yeah. Uh, you know, defeating fascism yeah. was an existential crisis yeah. uh, for our country. And so we just did it. And we just did it. And combating climate change. Yeah. Uh, what? That's too much? Yeah. No. And, 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 and what's interesting, of course, is that we just did it in World War II. And the country was better off for it unambiguously. I mean, that we built an enormous amount of productive capacity. I mean, it's a shame, of course, that we had to fight the war. Uh, um, that wasn't good, but, uh, but, it, but ramping the economy up out of the depression and building all of this remarkable capacity and putting all these folks to work, um, generating all this new technology, you know, that benefited the country for, decades perhaps right. a couple of generations and there's a similar opportunity to do the same thing today with respect to climate change and and of course we don't want rampant inflation to get out of control like it was in the 1970s before <laughs> most of our listeners were born yeah. um but you know if inflation starts to rear its ugly head then we can raise the taxes or cut back the spending. Right. But until then, you know, as Professor Kabu points out, and I think you mentioned it as well, orthodox economists have done a pretty crappy job of forecasting inflation. Yeah, terrible. And I mean, I think he uh, made these very, he made a very good point, which is that, uh, you know, certainly within the framework of the Green New Deal, you're addressing a bunch of the most, a bunch of the factors within the economy, including healthcare, that drive most of the inflation that we currently have. So by addressing those things, even if some of the green energy focused things drive higher prices, if you brought the price of healthcare down significantly, well then there goes your inflation. Right, and that gets yeah. back to what Governor Inslee was talking about. Uh, he's not a single issue candidate because 
climate is a health care issue. It's an economic issue. Yeah. It's a jobs issue. It's a housing issue. It's an education issue. To actually solve climate, we have to solve all of these problems at once. Exactly. On the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, Nick and I talk with economist Sam Bowles about why homo economicus must die. Bum, bum, bum. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media, that's L-A-R-J Media, and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks. And you should also follow Nick Hanauer on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests and thank you to our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Nick Casella, and Annie Fadley. Thanks for listening. I'm a pro. Such a pro.